This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. I've tried to think of an illustration for this because this message is, uh, it has a, has a bit of weight to it, if I were to mean like textual weight, like brain power weight, and I don't really like giving messages like this. This was sort of one of those requirements. Philip, Nathan, and I uh, were all sitting around as we were preparing for this semester, and we were talking about the the curriculum and how we were going to teach the students that are currently here. And Philip keeps sticking in this one message uh, into the semester. I'm always like, how, how does this thing get in here? And it's a great message, but it's, it's, it's a hard one. It's something that I, I developed a long time ago. And, and so he, he's always sort of heard me mutter about it, that it's like, because it used to be that we played a video for it. And then Philip's like, no, no video. We want you live uh, doing it, Eric. And so this is the negotiation. Uh, I ended up, I have to do it one Sunday out of the semester, I'm going to give this message, but I can give a fresh version of it, okay? And that's, that was the reason. It's like, I gave that back in 2012. It doesn't feel fresh. And so this is fresh, okay? So that, that gives you a li- at least a little context of what this is. But it's a little heavier than the normal message that I would give on a Sunday, if I could say it that way. I don't mean in conviction, I just mean in girth and weight, and so I'm try- I've been trying to think of ways that I can give mental pictures so that those that are present that don't really aren't attracted to heavy can sort of have a, you know, the lighter version and get a mental picture of what this is. And so here's at least my mental picture of what I'm going to be giving. When I was in Branson uh, a few, I don't know, it was a couple months ago, they have a river, uh, so you go down to the, the downtown district, there's some kind of like river walk area, like a mall, and they have this zip line that goes across a river and up sort of like a canyon uh, type of uh, a feel. So it looks like a pretty fun thing. I, I didn't go on it, but that's sort of my mental picture here, where if you were to imagine the commission that we have from our king, it's that we need to somehow get from the top of this canyon, across this canyon and this entire river to the other side where life is. And that's not very easy. I don't know how many of you can uh, leap that from a, the top of a canyon and somehow survive this, this jump. And so one of the things that's going to happen in the Old Testament is you're going to see God begin to reveal himself to his people. And we know them as the Israelites. And then as time is we're going to progress, you're going to see a split of kingdoms. You're going to have 10 tribes of Israel uh, that are going to go to the north, and their capital city is Samaria, and two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, that are going to go to the south, and they're going to be known as the nation of Judah. And those that uh, are in the nation of Judah are going to be known as the Jews, and so they're going to be the ones that out of which Jesus is going to come forth, uh, born of Mary. And uh, so we have the story of the Jews, we could say it that way, or the Israelites, and God is going to reveal himself. But he's going to reveal himself through something known as law. And law is a fairly hefty thing to lug around. And it would be sort of like this big, huge beam, if I could liken it to something. And it has, I mean, it's a pretty uh, amazing, uh, well-cut beam, and, uh, and it has like these handles on it. And there's these different attributes to it. And God's basically saying, you need to carry this to the other side. Not just get yourself, but you need to carry this. This is sort of your secret to the other side. And you're looking at that going, God, I don't think that's helping. That's making it worse because all you're doing under this huge beam is fall into the ground. It's like, God, now I'm even worse off. If I have to carry this thing across and God's like, that's the way to get across. Unless you can carry that beam across, you can't get across. It's like, what? That is totally ridiculous. And of course, there's many of us that have tried. And we've tried our best to carry the law across. And it's like, well, if God's asking for it, then I'm going to do it. However, the law has a reason why it's been given. And that is not that it's not true. Everything about that is true. This is the secret. This was given to us on purpose. However, you can't do it. 
You can't carry it. It's like, oh, okay, thank you, God. You're going to give me this incredible load. You're going to say that's what is going to carry me across, but then I can't do it. You see, what it's supposed to lead you to is a cry, a desperate cry in your soul to say, God, I need help. And that is precisely what the law is given for. The Bible is going to refer to it as a schoolmaster. In other words, it's a tutor. It's a teacher. It's going to say, have you gotten the lesson yet? Have you learned your lesson yet? Have you figured this out? Yeah, this is too heavy for me. That's good. Okay, you're getting there. But God, I can't carry this across. I can't get across this canyon with this big, heavy log. He says, you're getting it. Keep going. Well, there's nothing I can do. Is there something you can do? You see, the law is a schoolmaster which leads us to Jesus Christ. And if I could describe what Jesus is going to do, he's going to come to this earth, and he is going to take this log across. And in so doing, it's like he's going to build a harness. And he's going to build this, I'm going to, almost like a steel pole, this big, thick thing that goes all the way across. And it's amazing, but if you rest that log on top of that pole and hold on to the handles that he designed, you can actually get from the top of that cliff, and with a great deal of fun, all the way across that canyon, across that river to the other side, and actually carry that law and fulfill all righteousness, even though you have to admit, it's not you that did it. It's you resting in his work. And when you have trust in what he has designed and what he has accomplished, then instead of trying to lift this thing up yourself, you rest it on what he has done. And if you hold on by faith, it actually carries you across to the territory of life. Now, that's a summary of what I'm going to cover. I probably could just say, amen, let's be done. <laughs> but for those of you that like to go a little deeper, let's do that. The name of this one is inviolable. I really like uh, the word and I'm going to start with a scripture that is maybe a little startling because uh, I threw it in at the last, especially if you have your notes, you're like, I don't see this scripture. And that is because the reason that I'm even giving this message, the reason that Philip and Nathan are like, yeah, this really needs to be in the semester, is because it plays a part in how our faith works. You see, when you trust God, you need to know God. And it's for one thing for me to say, believe in God, He's trustworthy. And you could acknowledge that intellectually, I'm sure he is. But why is it that I don't feel that? I, and so there is something in Christianity of being convinced. You need to become convinced in the, in the, of the nature, the character, the trustworthiness of God. And so this scripture right here, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. You see, you're not saved by esteeming the holiness of God, by esteeming the righteousness of God. You are, you are saved by grace through faith. And so what I'm going to do in this message is I'm going to build sort of a case of what it is that a believer is believing, what it is we are turning to and gaining a confidence in. Because the entire Old Testament is going to reveal who God is. And we are going to stand back in awe. And he's going to start with some big, grand revelations. And they literally strike awe, fear in your soul when you see him. But if that is all he is, is this unapproachable God that is full of a holy, holy, holiness, blazing righteousness, then all of us are lost. But there is more to this revelation of who he is. And that is that even though he is all of that, he also is love. And that love is going to cause him to act in such a way that is going to harm him to help us. Because he desires us to get across that canyon, to spend eternity with him. Inviolable never to be broken, infringed, or dishonored. So it's something that is unbreakable, unbendable. It can't be rearranged. It is as it is. It is inviolable. So God is inviolable. 
He's going to make that clear throughout Scripture, and he's going to give a symbol of it. When he says something, when he gives a promise, he means it. Now, what's interesting is this symbol of a rainbow has fallen into a bit of disrepair in our culture, and as a result, we as Christians sometimes don't know how to relate to it because you know, we don't want to make the wrong political or social statement when we mention it. When in actuality, this is God's territory. You know, it's like Zorro with his Z. This is God's Z. This is God's statement in the skies, like I was here. You see, what a rainbow is, you go all the way back to the days of Noah, and a rainbow has never altered. It is the exact same. In fact, its color scheme is exactly the same. I could just imagine uh, Noah teaching his sons about Roy G. Biv. Uh, I could just imagine it, right? In other words, it's the same pattern of colors. It's the same colors. A rainbow is a rainbow. It was interesting. We, were, uh, we had a little Ellerslie Prep Academy here back in the day, and we were going around the room, all these little kids, and we were asking everyone's favorite color. You know, it was a blue. I like pink. And then one of the kids, I think it was one of mine, said, I like rainbow. I was like, huh, that's an interesting color. And you know, that's the way that a little child looks at it. That's a color. And it's a good way of describing it. It is. It's a d- defined color scheme. So the rainbow, the reminder of God's inviolable nature. Genesis 9.13, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. So when you see a rainbow, you recognize it as a signal, it is a symbol, it is a token of God's covenant, which is unbreakable. He will never alter it. He will never change. And of course, we know that that is talking about he'll never destroy the earth with a flood again, but you need to recognize that as an extension of who he is. In other words, whatever he promises is like that. You see the rainbow, and I don't care what it is he's promised. He's good for it. He will do it. Ezekiel 1.28. So now Ezekiel, in this book, this is quite, when you read the first chapter of Ezekiel, you feel like you've gone back into Narnia. And I'm not exaggerating. Okay, you got a lot of odd stuff happening. And Ezekiel is going to see God on this chariot, but the chariot is like, almost like a plate of glass, like a, a frozen river with these wheels and then these cherubim uh, that are somehow mixed in. These wheels have eyes, too, just in case you were wondering. So it's a very unique uh, scene. He says, As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain. That's a rainbow. So was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spoke. So he's going to see God Almighty on his throne on this chariot. It's like a mobile holy of holies, if I could describe it. And he's going to be clothed or wrapped in a rainbow. It's as it is the glory of God. You see, the glory of God is a rainbow of all things. You can understand why the enemy sort of wants to traipse off with this incredible clothing and act like it's theirs, okay? Hey, whoa, 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 this is God's clothing here. You know, you think about Joseph and you think about his coat of many colors. And of course, Joseph is an incredible picture of a savior of a people. I mean, it's, it's, it's a truly remarkable picture, but Jesus has a coat of many colors. Here we see it in Revelation 4, 3. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So we see this clothing, this, this basic statement of who God is. He was, he is, and he always will be the same. A rainbow is his clothing, is the token of covenant it has always been, it will be, and it always will be from here on out, a statement that his word is true. So, fun word, motive. So, many of us know, like in a, in a mystery suspense thing, you know, that, you know, someone, especially a murder mystery, is like, what was the motive behind that? What was the action behind the action? What was the thought behind in other words, was it like revenge? Was it stupidity? I mean, there could be all sorts of things. It's like, oh, they picked up a gun, didn't know it was loaded, and poof, it went off. Oh, no. There's a motive behind. There's an action behind an action. So that which causes motion, that which incites the act to action, that which determines the choice or moves the will. It's the motive. 
Now it's interesting because you put auto in front of that and you get automotive. You put loco in front of that and you get locomotive. And so it's this thing of action, this thing of movement, but we all have a motive. The problem is our motive is off. When we first pop out of our mother's womb, something is off. Our motive is off. That which is inciting movement in our life seems to be skewing us away from the king's behavior and toward earth's behavior. Or, as the Bible would say it, Adam's behavior instead of Jesus' behavior. And so something is wrong, and it's inciting all of our motives, our thoughts, our actions. Everything we're doing seems to have something behind it that is moving us in the wrong direction. Praarizo, there's a good Greek word for you. So if any of you have ever gotten snagged in the discussion on uh, predestination, there's your word right there. And you could say, Eric, are you actually going there? Sort of, okay? In other words, not to try and snag you, to actually more trying to get the snag off your, uh, your pant leg. Because it's a dangerous territory when you start hanging out with the, the concepts of predestination. It's like, I was destined to sit in this seat right now. And, you know, or I punched someone in the nose. I was predestined to do that. And so you can blame everything on this idea of predestination. When, so I want to simplify the idea so you can grasp it without getting muddled by it. Praorizo means the predecision, the predetermination, the eternally established inner wiring of the will, that which is set and hardened long ago. So basically, we could say this. God has a praorizo. There is something about him that is already defined. It is already set. It's already fixed. Now, when you conclude that that means all of the things that are going to happen in this world are already fixed, it creates a challenge in your brain, and it actually muddles your ability to live in obedience because you feel like something else is in control of all it, and I have no voice or no will or no say or responsibility, and it sort of messes with the normal functionality of how a human was designed. However, that doesn't diminish the fact that God has a prarizo, that he has a predetermined behavior. So that's what I want to hit on here because it really helps. I'm going to call it the set motive. Remember how I talked about our motive seems off and something's wrong? God has a set motive and it is godly. It is the way a motive ought to be. And that's what I'm going to liken to a prarizo. It's already set. God's motive is already fixed and it can never alter. It is inviolable. So the set motive, it's guaranteed, wholly predictable, never shocking behavior, altogether always in perfect congruence with the revealed nature. He never violates what he has declared he will do. One of the statements I oftentimes make is classic God. Oh, you're sharing a story with me. I'm like, yeah, that's classic God. Oh yeah, yeah, classic devil. You see, there's a prarizo that God has. It's not shocking. Yeah, that's the way he works. Oh, yeah, and you chuckle. The more you get familiar with God's ways, you have to chuckle too. It's like, yeah, he, he has a great sense of humor. He really does. Even when we're in the midst of suffering, we're like, yeah, that's classic God. That's the way he walks us through. But he's doing it to bring about a greater triumph. And even that person will see it if they just keep believing throughout it. But the devil has a prarizo. He has a predetermined will. He has a motive that is set as well. It's hardened. It's fixed in place. And he sort of just is the bad guy in the story. He's already chosen his route. God's chosen his. He's defined. He is who he is. And the enemy is who he is too. Huh. I'm noticing that my notes just suddenly disappeared. The guaranteed behavior. So that's what I'm going to call it, okay? When you get muddled or lost in the issue of predetermination, like, oh, all of these things and these actions have already been defined, you're missing the point of this word. This word is saying this is the intent, this is the motive behind everything in who God is. He is already set. He is already fixed in place. He is headed this way. The praarizo. John 10.10, Jesus is going to mention the prarizo. Listen to this. He's going to talk about the fixed behavior of the devil and himself. 
The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Boom, we just separated out prararitsos, set motives. He knows the thief, and he's not saying the thief you know, needs to repent. The thief is sort of, uh, you know, he's been doing the wrong things, but he doesn't have to do that. The thief does that. The thief has had a season. You ever notice that you know, things like clay have a season of softness? And then if that, in that season of softness there isn't a malleability unto the potter's will, that it will harden into a position? Mm-hmm. Praharitso. That's what it means. It is set. It is formed into its place. It is no longer soft and malleable. God is no longer, if you want to say it this way, soft and malleable to be altered. His nature is what it is. He is who he is. Aren't you glad that he's good? <laughs> because he wouldn't change and budge from that position. His nature is inviolable. So the praritzo of darkness, Jesus says to steal, kill, and destroy. In other words, to break the law. This is what darkness does. Now the reason I'm bringing this up is because as we begin to navigate forward in our spiritual lives, and we're beginning to discern, to discern between flesh and spirit in our life, that the Spirit of God has an agenda. But how do we know when it's the Spirit speaking to us? How do we know when it's God that is leading us? Because we want to do what is right, but we're so susceptible to doing that which is wrong. And we've listened to the voice of the devil so long, and he'll even masquerade as if he's wisdom. And so he'll masquerade as if he has the voice of God. And so we've been convoluted for a good portion of our life. How do you begin to discern? Well, just like pain, I remember dealing with the issue of pain. It's like, should I, is pain a good thing or a bad thing? Now, if I say that, most of you just say bad. And yet, you need to recognize that pain is not always bad. And I'm going to say there is, is a bad pain. There's a pain that comes from the devil, but there's also a pain that is good and it's constructive. And if any of you have ever exercised, lifted weights, or done anything like that, I don't know what you call it when you're on the 12th rep on a, a, a weight that is really hard for you, like, ah, and someone's like, keep going, keep going. They stick one finger on the bar, and you're like, hey, help me. It's pain. You have lactic acid that is flushing to that muscle, and your muscle is, is in a vigorous state. And guess what? It's good pain. Why? Because it's growing you stronger. Well, then there could also be a knife in the arm, you know, twisting, and guess what? Bad pain. In other words, because it's harming and deteriorating your health. You see, there's two in every situation. And Jesus is separating that out and saying the devil or the powers of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, has a motive. It has a design to destroy. I have come to bring life. And that has always been his motive. So the prarizo of light, it's to bring life and that more abundant to fulfill the law. So what is the law? That which, that which God gave in order to reveal man's motive. See, how would you know that you're bent in the wrong direction and that your instinct is to head in the wrong way if you weren't told? Because your instinct to go in the wrong way seems right to you. That's what is extra weird about the way that we are as humans is our bent to go in the wrong direction seems right. And God needs to show us that it's not right. So what does he give us? He gives us the law. The law is going to reveal that our motive is wrong. To clarify the just punishment for a wrong motive and to woo man's soul to repentance before man's wrong motive becomes set and no longer fixable. So I already said that the devil's motive is fixed. And I've said that God's motive is fixed. However, there we are in the balance, and our motive is like wet clay, and God is desiring to steer our motive in a different direction, and he does that first and foremost through the law. He needs to acquaint us with the fact that we are headed in the wrong direction, that there is something wrong and off, and we need a Savior. The history of the law. History of the law is actually going to start at a burning bush you want to say it that way. In fact, the whole Bible is going to start at that bush. Moses is readied 
by God in the wilderness for 40 years. And then suddenly he's going to encounter God in a bush. I mean, what a strange way. Uh, our God definitely has a unique method. If you were going to come and start your revelation on earth, would you pick a bush? And yet you could even see the brilliance of God's plan, sort of like classic God. That's, that's what I would say about that. The fact that he, the fact that he chose a bush, yeah, huh? The fact that he chose a book, bush, classic God. You see, that's even a picture of the entire Christian life. You know that that bush, I and mean, this is where Moses has been, you know, shepherding his sheep for all these 40 years, not in this exact location, but I can have a hunch he's wandered by that bush quite a few times and never noticed it. Sort of like us. We're just an everyday bush. And yet what happens when the presence of God enters into that bush? Suddenly it stops everything and changes the course of history. And so what you see is that God seems to choose weak things through which to reveal his greatest things. And he chose a bush. And he is going to speak to Moses in and through that bush, and he's going to make something clear. One of the first revelations that we're going to get for the entire revelation of all of Scripture is going to come right here. God is going to give his name. Isn't that an interesting thought that God is giving his name? It's like, uh, you know, if someone asked me what my name is, it's like, my name is Eric Winston Ludi. Tell the people of Israel that Eric Winston Ludi is talking, right? That's what it could have sounded like. But it wasn't me in the bush, it was God. So when God answers the question, what does he say? That's, that's a very odd thought. And this is the revelation that's going to come out. God was, is, and always will be the same. So the first foundational revelation in the scripture is actually going to come from the name of God, which I'll, I'll read the scripture. And Moses, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. I am, is what he said. Now we translate that into Jehovah, or Yehovah, or Yahweh, or Yahweh, or Adonai in the Aramaic, or all caps, Lord. To the Jew, they wouldn't even speak the name. It's ineffable, unspeakable. Lest they break the commandment of not taking the name of the Lord, which is this, in vain. However, in the basis of the revelation, God is saying, I was, I am, and I always will be. And we could say he is, he was, he is, and always will be what? Because that's an unfinished sentence for all of us. Well, and he, he would just look back and say, I was, I am, and I always will be. However, what that means is the same. For us, the translation in our mind is, I always was this way, I am this way today, and I still will be this way tomorrow. Okay, are you guys getting it? <laughs> is what he's trying to communicate to us is I don't alter. I am inviolable in my nature. So as a result, once you know that he doesn't alter, now you sort of are curious to say, well, what is he that doesn't alter? Because he could be a bad guy, right? And he's not going to change from being a bad guy. But what if he's a good guy? That becomes very good news as we progress. The God of set motive, guaranteed. These could be names of God. Guaranteed, wholly predictable, never shocking behavior, always, altogether always in perfect congruence with the revealed nature. His will is able to be known from before the foundations of the world. Just meditate upon that. He was fixed in place before the foundations of the world. His motive can be known before even that. You see, he is who he is. He was this way. He still is this way and always will be that way. Classic God. His will is able to be known from before the foundations of the world. He is fixed, set, resolute, immutable, unchanging, and without shadow of turning. But what is his nature? If God is a set motive, then what is his set motive? What is his will? What is his predictable behavior? What is he guaranteed to do? Because that's the question that is begged in Scripture. You see, when Moses is starting out, you could almost get his, you know, his thinking going. It's like, okay, now I know you're fixed. I know you're always the same, but who are you? 
And God is going to begin to reveal himself. And this is part of who he is. He desires to be known. Isn't that interesting that of all the things that we could say about God, one of the primary things about God is that he is always the same and that one of the attributes that is always the same is he wants us to know him. He could remain in cloud and mystery. Instead, he wants to introduce himself to us so that we would know him as he is. He is a God of revelation. He desires to be known. Of course, as we progress in Scripture, this is going to be known as the Word. He is the Word of God, which means it is His desire. So what was He? He is a God who reveals. What is He? He is a God who reveals. What will He be? He is a God who reveals. He is not keeping back who He is. He is sharing who He is. He desires to be known, which shows you also an understanding of your purpose, of your creation. What did He design you for? To know Him. He's a God who had this fixed motive even before you were a twinkle in his eye. And as a result, when he is creating you, he's creating you to match him. He is a God of revelation. He desires you to know that revelation. What else do we learn? Well, what, what is one of the first things that happens? That Israelites cross the Red Sea and they end up in the wilderness and they receive these tablets of stone. Whew. What are they going to discover about God? Remember that mountain, Mount Sinai? It's like thundering fires. You know, anyone that approaches is just strike, struck down dead. He's holy. That's what they're going to learn. So God is going to layer on top of the fact that he is. He's going to layer on the fact that he has revealed himself to us or desires to be known. And then he's going to start revealing who he is so that we could know him. And by the way, let's kick this thing off with a, a flurry. I'm holy. In fact, he's going to go even deeper than that. It's going to be, I'm holy, holy, holy. We're like, okay, this is rather intimidating to find out that God, who is always the same, is holy. So what does that mean? He is unlike the darkness. You know that the word holy would be an unnecessary word in any language if it wasn't for sin. You see, sin took and created a different behavior other than God. So how does God define himself? I'm not like that other behavior. See, I'm a completely different behavior. And this is what he's doing in giving his law. He's like, this is the behavior of heaven. How are you doing? You see, he's revealing another behavior, an unholy behavior. Psalm 99.9, the Lord our God is holy. I could find some other scriptures to back it up, but we'll just use that one. So what does that mean? One of the phrases or one of the words, it's an adverb that we have used many times here at Ellerslie is, he is otherly. Isn't that sort of a fun way of describing it? He's otherly. It seems like there should be a worship song. Uh, otherly. Uh, <clears throat> not as the dark, but light. Not as death, but life. Not as the lie, but truth. Not as the bad, but good. Not as the flesh, but spirit. Not as sin, but righteous. Not as dishonest scales, but just and equitable. Not as a wave of the sea tossed to and fro, but unchanging. Not as self-centered, but love. Not as lawlessness, but as the perfect fulfillment of the law. Otherly. Always and eternally otherly. Never for one moment is he not otherly but rather he is trifold otherliness, wholly separate from darkness and untouched by its stain. So as we're getting familiar with our God, we know that he is always the same. We know that he desires to be known. Now he's going to start making himself known. And he's holy, holy, holy. He is other than that motive. Sorry, guys. Any one of you on this side of the room are getting the dark powers of darkness seem to be resting over here. That does not, don't let it land on you, okay? It's just, it's just over in this zone, okay? And some of you are over here going, yeah, see, I picked the right, I know which side I was going to pick. However, God is not like that. He is other than what has happened in this world due to sin. And so the law is actually what is going to acquaint us with this. That's how we learn about the otherliness of God. If we don't have the law, we don't distinguish between sin and righteousness. We don't distinguish between dark and light. 
All we have is blur. He is righteous. He is in perfect relation to the law. So God is going to give a law, and he's basically going to say, this is my behavior. Now, if you're going to participate with me and enter into fellowship with me, you need to have this behavior. Remember how I started out this message by talking about a big log? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Could you imagine if you're otherly than God? You're stuck in this Adam condition of sin, and God starts layering on. He's always the same. He's revealing himself to us. He's holy, holy, holy. Oh, and by the way, he's righteous. He's perfectly in stride with the law of God. Oh, and if you want to have any fellowship with him, you need to be too. That is one heavy log. Now, it's interesting because when you first hear that, we're all sort of of the same ilk. We have a tendency to think, I can do that. I could carry that. It's, it's like seeing, have you ever seen, well, this is a young guy thing. You see a guy jump up and try and touch like a rim of a basketball hoop. And you're standing there, you know, acting like you don't see it. And then when he leaves, you go running up and try and touch it. That's the same thing. We, we see the standard and we're like, I could jump up and touch that. I could do that. And we instinctively think that the goal is to do it ourselves. And this is what the law has to work in us. God knows how we're wired, which is why he needs to do it this way. He needs to expose the fraudulence. He needs to expose the sin. I know we oftentimes have a very negative view of the law, and that is because it cannot save. However, it does lead us to the Savior. It has a role that it plays. It's perfect. It's righteous. It is a description, a depiction of God Almighty. It's just like getting mad at the log. Say, I hate this log. But that log has done something very helpful to you. It's shown you that you're too weak to carry it. And that's important for the life lesson. Because if you want to get across this canyon, you need to first come to the conclusion that you need to sit in that harness that he's going to build. And apart from that, you couldn't do this. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. Righteousness is as God is. It's a good description of it. He is unblurred light, eternal life, always truthful, perfectly good, always just, holy, loving, with a perfect hatred for sin and a perfect love for that which is good, holy, unchanging, unblemished, without spot, and the perfect fulfillment of the law. By the way, I didn't say you are that. I said he is that. And what his holiness And his righteousness are going to do is it's going to add weight to that log. God is revealing, because that log is ultimately going to be his nature, it's truth, but it's going to be the law. And the law in and of itself is unbearable. We can't lift it up. And in fact, the more we get to know it, the heavier it becomes. The more awesome God is. And the smaller we are. There is nothing better for the soul than that life lesson. But many of us want to avoid that at all costs. It's like Christianity, it's just the New Testament. It's just like, I just have the New Testament, just some good news. However, the only way that that can be defined as good news is that you understand the bad news, and that is that you can't do it, and that you're lost, and you have a chasm that is separating you from the land of life, and you are under just penalty of law, under condemnation. And that is how God tutors the soul. It's a schoolmaster which leads us unto Christ. So the law, that which brings light to the otherness or the holiness of God, enunciating the perfect righteousness or the law-keeping nature of God's behavior. He is otherly. The law clarifies light from dark, life from death, truth from lie, good from bad, justice from injustice, selfishness from love, spirit from flesh, and righteousness from sin. It exposes the fact that God is otherly from us, and we are otherly from him. The law is a schoolmaster. That's what it says in Galatians 3. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Why did you receive this heavy load? Because, I mean, I'm going to, this is a spoiler alert, but it's because God loves you. I know, I, sorry to give so much away in the storyline here. However, if you just see the unchanging nature of God, 
You see that he wants to be known and he wants to reveal something to you. At first you could come to the conclusion, yeah, he wants to reveal that he's perfect and I'm not. And that could be your conclusion. You could walk away, clucking your tongue, saying, I don't want anything to do with a God who just wants to boast and walk around proud like a rooster, you know, telling me about all his great qualities, meanwhile showing me all the ones I don't have. Meanwhile, the motive for God has always been the same. He has come to bring you life and that more abundant. Then why is he showing me his holiness? Then why is he showing me his righteousness? Because his motive is to bring you life. How could this bring me life? This heavy log that he has set upon me, how could that bring me life? And so many of us can find ourselves in that exact juncture of our life where we're feeling the heaviness of God's command We're feeling the heaviness of God's perfection. We're feeling the heaviness of God's holiness and righteousness. And I could come up to you and say, you're in a really good place. You go, sure doesn't feel like a really good place. However, it's a schoolmaster. And it's doing something in your soul. You see, self-righteousness is a very dangerous place to be. I can do this. I can do this. You know what we've done? We've shaved off as much of it as we can. And it's like this little thin pencil-like thing on our shoulder. You know, because we've, we've justified and excused ourselves in so many Well, God didn't actually mean that. Well, God, yeah, he doesn't actually mean that. What he meant was this pencil. I, you could still take that pencil and try and jump across that canyon. I don't care how light you make it. That law is supposed to bring you to the point where you don't try and do it yourself. The problem is when you shave it down to the pencil... Now you think you can do it yourself and you're headed towards certain destruction. Your self-righteousness is one dangerous enemy of your soul. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. That's a great way to describe it. Remember my, my zip line? I know some of you are really wanting to try this zip line too. It's, it's really fun. But spiritually we can, okay? So we're on the top of a canyon. And what is faith in this? Faith is setting that law on top of something that can actually hold it up. And no longer are we under the weight of it. Once God has created his way and we trust in it. The cross has given us a means, a way. And it fulfills the law. And as we cling in faith, we are justified by his work on the cross. The law exposes just consequence. So what does the law say? You sin, you die. Remember that tree in the Garden of Eden? The day in which you eat of it, you will surely die. It's called the law of sin and death, or you sin, you die. Now, the revelation, since God desires to be known, it's not, just, it's not just facts. It's something that he communicates to the depths of our being. And what does the revelation sound like to our soul? You've sinned, therefore you die. You see, this is personal too. The reason the, the law is used by the Spirit of God is to convict us of sin so that we would recognize our need of a Savior. And so even though we're not saved by that law, We're indirectly saved because it leads us to the one who can save us. It is still a part of the working of salvation, though in and of itself it cannot save. You've sinned, therefore you die. Well, that's not a very fun revelation, but it's still part of the necessary revelation for our soul. The law exposes just consequence. The law says, uh, you must be righteous, you know, like God. The revelation, I, I can't do it. I am not like God. Boy, that was a ding, 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 big moment. Because many of us, it takes us a long time to get to that point. I'm not like God. I am not God. That's another way you could say it. How am I, I can't carry this. He can carry it, but I can't. Boy, that's a great moment in your spiritual life. I know you still feel the heaviness of it all, but wow, you're getting close, guys. I can't do it. I'm not like God. I am unholy and unrighteous. I am a sinner. The cry. You see, the revelation is supposed to bring about this. What must I do to be saved? You see, the law is working to bring us to this exact point where we, the revelation of God, up to this point in our soul, maybe, okay, he's unchanging, he is the great I am, I got it. He's revealed himself to me, yeah, I see that too. And what have I seen? He's holy, he's righteous, he's perfect, he's just. 
<sighs> Lord, I know that you desire something. You desire to bring me life. What must I do? You see, that heavy weight is meant to bring about a calling out for your Savior. The cross reveals grace. What does the cross reveal? Believe and live. You see, this was you sin, you die, but what is the cross saying? You believe, you live. It's like the law of aerodynamics compared to the law of gravity. If you've only known the law of gravity, you could feel like there's no way I can pull this off because I'm supposed to leap across this Grand Canyon. How in the world am I supposed to do that? And Jesus says, believe and live. Rest that log upon my long steel pole. Hold on for dear life and trust as you sit in that harness that I can do it for you. I believe. And as we do, we live. We transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And like I said, have a great time doing it. Boy, doesn't that sound like a fun ride? Some of you are like, we need to invent this thing. We can call it the gospel ride, you know, make big bucks, buy Learjets. No, I'm joking. Uh, the cross says, believe and live. The revelation, my God has made a way for me to be saved. You see, what you're seeing right there, I'm going to say, classic God. What is faith? It's that. It's awakening. The cry leads to the discovery. God wants you to know, not just that you're a sinner, but that he has saved sinners. He doesn't want you just to know his holiness and his righteousness and his perfection. He wants you to know how much he loves you and that he has come and made a way. You see that harness? You, you, you sit in it and you can buckle in. You can I mean, just hang on. You trust what I have designed for you, and it will, in fact, work wonders in your life and set you free. The set motive of our God has been revealed. So God's motive is set. It's unalterable. It's inviolable. But what is it? It's been revealed, guys. Get to know the Word of God. Cherish it, because it's the foundation of your confidence. So number one, he was and is and is to come. He is eternal and unchanging. Number two, he is the word of God. He has made himself and his purposes known. Number three, he is holy. He has no darkness in him. He is perfectly otherly. Number four, he is righteous. There is no flaw in him. He is perfectly and legally just and right. Now, if we just stop there, we still just have a log. However, the gospel and the revelation throughout Scripture does not stop there. You see, God was the same way back in Genesis. It's not like he has evolved and taken on new attributes, going, you know what, I've been sort of a dark character, you know, in the Old Testament, a little rude. I'd sort of like to upgrade, you know, do the God upgrade package and become a little nicer. There are some of us that actually sort of have that thought, that God has altered in the New Testament, when in actuality, he's always been the same. Now, we were cut off from the goodness, and that's the reason it can seem like God suddenly is a lot more pleasant in the New Testament, but that's because of what Jesus has done. He has given us access unto our God, who is good. The statement of law God eternally was, is, and always will be holy and righteous. You are other than he is and have violated his righteous nature. Therefore, you are under the just sentence of death, and your due punishment is eternal hellfire. Whew. You see, we don't call that good news. We typically would call that bad news. However, the bad news is essential to understand the good news. What does Ray Comfort say? You know, if a policeman just comes up to someone who's been speeding, but he didn't know he was speeding. He thought he was going, you know, the right speed limit. And he says, yeah, uh, you know, you had a ticket, but uh, someone paid for it. And you're like, well, I wasn't guilty in the first place. And so you have no appreciation for the fact that your speeding ticket was paid for until they show you on camera that you went through, I think he calls it like a blind uh, crippled school kids convention or something like that. And, you know, it's like 10 miles an hour and you went through at 75 and they have it on film. And, you know, the, the penalty for this is imprisonment. And suddenly, having your debt paid for makes a whole bunch of sense. 
You see, you have to be awakened to the fact that you have a debt, that you are a sinner. And that's what causes you to cry out for your Savior. And crying out for your Savior is what leads you across that chasm. The law of the Lord is perfect. Listen to this. Converting the soul. Isn't that an amazing statement? What does the law of the Lord do? It converts us. It changes us from sinner unto one who is crying out for a Savior. That's what it does. It awakens us from our stupor. The statement of grace. So we're just now, it's the first time in this entire message I've used the word grace. Some of you are like, oh, whew, boy, this log has been very heavy throughout this message. The statement of grace. But, but, okay, we already got the statement of law, but, but God is not merely holy and righteous. What? He is also love. And though we were justly deserving of condemnation at the expense of his own person, he saw fit to humble himself and endure the terrible sufferings of a cross in order to bear the just sentence of death and the due punishment that was rightfully ours to bear. He is love. He has always been who he is. Yes, and he's always been a God of revelation. Yes, he has always been holy, holy, holy. Yes, he has always been righteous. Yes, he has always been perfect and just. But he has also always been love. And his motive has always been set in the same way it is set right now. He is motivated to bring us life. Isn't that an incredible definition of love? If you were to think about how God is desirous to reveal himself through us, and he desires us to love him and others, we're motivated to bring life wherever we go. What is love? There's just one definition. There's a lot of ways you could describe it. That behavior which is absent of self-interest and wholly occupied with another's gain. That's a strange behavior. Yeah, because it's not normal human. You see, the normal human behavior, the motive is self-gain. So what's this? This is otherly. This is an otherly motive where the motive is others' gain. How, how does that work? That sounds risky. How, who would take care of me? You see, this is what happens in the transfer. When you come unto Christ, you are awakened to a different way of thinking, a different way of living. And what God wants to do is actually begin to train up this life, to plant himself in the center of your body and to exhibit this behavior in and through it, to change the motive. Uh, there's a scripture, just in case you were wondering, you know, what my scriptural validation is. First John 4, 8, God is love. John 3, 16, don't know if you've ever heard this scripture before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but of everlasting life. Isn't it amazing just to see how the Bible is built? That God is revealing himself to us. And you almost feel like it's like, hey, but just know this. You see, you should perish. And that's what you're needing to conclude. This weight upon you. I can't do this. I'm perishing in this state. You're right. But he doesn't want you to perish, but he wants you to have everlasting life. It's because of his love. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The law, that which sets forth God's eternal decree of what is perfect behavior, right action, and just consequence. More simply, that which reveals sin, the schoolmaster. Grace, God's loving and legal response to the failure on man's part to demonstrate perfect behavior, right action, and the measures God has taken to rescue us from the just consequences of our error. More simply, that which rescues from sin, Jesus. What saves you? Now, we know that we're saved by Jesus, but at the same time, the Bible is going to say we are saved by grace. What is that? This seems to be the annunciation of God seeking life for you. And so, God so loved the world that he gave grace to us. He gave his son so that his son could give us his life. His son has given us grace. 
Law was not discarded in the offering of grace. It was fulfilled. So the righteousness of God didn't suddenly disappear because of grace. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Holiness was not discarded in the declaration of God's love. It was now made possible. Righteousness was not discarded now that Jesus has expressed his mercies and kindnesses at the cross. He has now enabled us to partake of his divine nature. God's nature is inviolable. He was, is, and always will be the same. So listen to this list. This is just going to be a meditation sort of on what we've covered so far. He did not turn off his hatred of sin. He still hates it with a vehemence. See, some of us have this funny conversion that takes place at the, at the cross, like in our mind towards the nature of God. It's like, okay, he hated sin in the Old Testament, but now he can put up with it because of the shed blood? It didn't change his perspective towards sin. He still hates it. He did not stop being holy and commanding us to be so as well. You know, in other words, when he says, be holy as I am holy, he didn't like alter that and say, you know what? Never mind on that. Scratch that. Don't be holy. I'll, I'll do all the holiness stuff. In other words, the command is still there. And so you could say, whoa, whoa, logs start to get heavy again, Eric. Well, that is if you don't rec- remember the harness and that pole, you know, that we don't live taking that log back off the pole. However, the log still maintains its weight. It still has its girth. His holiness is still packed inside of it, trifold, holy, holy, holy. His righteousness, which is blazing, is still packaged inside of that log. It didn't alter. It's just that before this, you couldn't carry it. Now he carries it. It is his work that saves us. It is his righteousness that clothes us. It is his holiness that we find refuge in. He did not cease from being perfectly righteous, just in a perfect and eternal punisher of sin. He did not quit opposing darkness. He did not take a break from having wrath toward all unrighteousness, but he also didn't quit being love. He didn't stop his rescuing grace. Some people think that when he died on the cross, his work is finished in the sense that he doesn't do any more work. However, he ever lives to make intercession for us. He will save us to the uttermost. He was, he is, and he always will be a savior. So it wasn't just that he was a savior 2,000 years ago. He is a savior. Present tense, muscle, backing your spiritual growth up. He did not stop his rescuing grace. He didn't cease being our intercessor, our captain of salvation. He didn't quit offering the humble mercy, kindness, patience, and gentleness. His commands haven't changed. His holiness hasn't altered. His righteous demands are still perfect and impossible. It's still true that if we sin, we die. But it's also true that if we believe, we live. When you enter into a plane, you function after a higher law, the law of aerodynamics. And the law of gravity, though it is still there, just like the law of sin, you sin, you die, still there. So what does Jesus say? Let's get in the plane and abide there. Okay, let's just, let's stay there. Because in that, you function after a higher law. It's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That is your great secret. You see, it is not a work you did. It is not something you have accomplished. It's something he did. Your job is to believe. Get into the harness. Hold on. Trust that he can carry that weight of a log. And he will get you into the land of life. And this is how we live. We live in every situation, every challenge in our life. We do the same thing. Every challenge in our life, there's not a diminishment of God's design for you. That his purpose for you is suddenly no longer holiness and righteousness. And he desires you just to live selfishly and to have the wrong motive that leads you over cliffs. He still desires the same things, but he knows that they are only accomplished as you rest in his love and as you hold on to his grace. A life under grace works. A life under law will always fail. It is meant to show you that and prove that to you. Grace, just one definition, the labor or work of God to carry out the impossible errands of the Almighty. You have a lot of impossible errands. It's called living the Christian life. You can't do it, but he can. So as a result, set those high commands on top of his grace 
sit in that harness of love and trust that as you are a believer, as you function in that trusting, dependent relationship, every challenge in your life is overcome the same way. You are saved the same way in every situation, not just in an eternal sense, but how about that temptation that comes? How about that challenge that comes into your life, whether it be financial, relational, it doesn't matter. You rest in God's love. Hold on to those handles that he's given you. Trust that he can carry the weight of it. The same way you're saved in the eternal sense with your soul is the same way you'll be saved in every situation in your life. It is not you that must muster up the power to overcome. It is God that overcomes. Your job is to believe in his overcoming power. The set motive of our God has been revealed. All right, This is our list, guys. We've been collecting. He was and is and is to come. He is eternal and unchanging. Number two, he is the word of God. He has made himself and his purposes known. Number three, he is holy. He has no darkness in him. He is perfectly otherly. Number four, he is righteous. There is no flaw in him. He is perfectly and legally just and right. And boom, we have a huge heavy log. And then in comes the revelation. The schoolmaster has done its work and now in walks the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is love, number five. He ever lives to bring us life even at his own expense. And number six, he is grace. He personally is ever laboring to keep our feet from stumbling and to present us a pure and spotless bride marked by his holiness, his righteousness, his purity, and his amazing love. We'll finish with the scripture we started with. By grace, you have been saved through faith. So the way I'm likening faith is to rest that heavy weight, that heavy responsibility, that heavy commission, that heavy-duty command that we in and of ourselves can't hold. Rest it on his, I'm calling it like a steel bar, it's grace. It's that which enables, that which can hold it up. And then your job is to rest in his love. The fact that he has called you. And as a good father, his desire is to save you and to rescue you. His intention is your life. His motive is your success. Do you trust that? And if you do, you hang on. You believe. And when you believe, by that grace, you have been saved through faith, through holding on and trusting that his work is sufficient. Not just his past tense work, but his present tense work. That he is able to keep you from falling. That he is able to strengthen you for every test, every trial, every challenge you will ever face. You have a God who is after your benefit. He is a savior in his very nature, even in his very name it's woven in. His name is the I am, so it's Jehovah, combined with a verb to save. Jehovah, the I am, saves. You know what his name translates as? He did save, he does save, and he always will save. He could say to all of our souls, any questions, O believers? Is there anything too dark, too formidable that you can't rest in his ability to bring you over it? His grace is sufficient to carry you over any chasm, any suffering, any trial, any challenge, any difficulty you will ever face. That is the promise. And there's a rainbow that surrounds it. He has promised. He has spoken. He will not fail us. It is our job to believe. And when we believe, we find life. The life that from the very beginning, before the foundations of the earth, he desired us to partake of. Father, I ask that you would work wonders in our soul, that we would be believers, that you would ratchet up the confidence that we have in you, in your immutable, unchanging nature that is inviolable, cannot be obstructed, cannot be broken, cannot be changed. Lord, we can rest in you. We can build upon you as a rock, and when winds and rains beat against our house, we will not falter and fall because we have fixed ourselves to something that cannot be moved forever. We love you, Lord. May you get glory in your body.
It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.